it is a great pleasure to welcome you to our last WSRP lecture for uh, this academic year and to introduce Professor Kimberly Blockett, who it's been such a pleasure to work with during this year for myself and all of the research associates. I'm not going to give her a lengthy introduction. Um, she did her doctorate at the University of Wisconsin, and she has taught for many years at uh, Penn State Brandywine, where she is associate professor in the English department and has chaired a diversity of units, way too many um, to name. She's published many articles on um, uh, topics in African-American women's literary studies and history and feminist theory. Um, however, it is my firm belief that her most important research is unpublished. Um, and that the revelations that she is going to share with us today um, are going to constitute her landmark contribution to the religious history of American women and African American women's literary studies. Um, her work on Zilpha Elal is going to reshape what we thought we knew for the last 30 years as we have misinterpreted and decontextualized uh, Zilpha Elal's um, remarkable uh, memoir that uh, was reprinted and is much read but little understood a situation soon to be remedied. Uh, Dr. Blockett. Thank you, Anne. <clears throat> um, I first want to express my gratitude uh, to, to everyone at the, at the Divinity School, but particularly to Dean and Mrs. Hempton, um, not only for the WSRP support, but you've both gone out of your way to make all of the fellows feel very well, a welcome part of the HDS community. And for that, I'm really grateful. Um, and of course, Anne and Tracy and all of my colleagues, all of the fellows um, and my students, I see a few in the room, um, have really made this a fantastic year. So thank you. Um, so. I'm going to talk about ELAW today. I'm going to try not to spill water on the computer first. And all right, let's move that there. There we go. OK. Um, so um, as you all have seen already, uh, name of my talk is hashtag say her name, recovering Zilpha ELAW's rebellious evangelicalism. And um, today I want to just start um, kind of in the present in the 21st century in 2016. And um, uh, where's my, what is it? I'm sorry. Thank you. I thought so. I didn't trust myself. Um, so in her 2016 visual album, Lemonade, Beyonce Knowles sampled this bit of a Malcolm X speech that had black Twitter on fire and running to electronic archives to find the source. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. So, 
In this particular sampling of a lesser known speech of Malcolm X's, he was not discussing female empowerment, but rather using an existing patriarchal structure to advocate for the protection of black women. Moreover, he delivered this speech at the 1962 funeral of Ronald Stokes, who was murdered by the LAPD. In one of her many exceptional moments of intertextuality, Beyonce also performed an archival act when she recovered, reclaimed, and then reused his voice to establish the historical rootedness of her own articulations of being black in the US and being black and female in the US. Within hours of the album's internet breaking debut, scholars of black studies were adding it to syllabi. We immediately understood its permanent place in black art as a stunning work that called for serious and sustained study of its successful and or limited interpretations of black female intersectionality, feminism, systemic racism, and the Black Lives Matter movement, all the while interrogating the complexities of commodifying black female bodies. At its core, Lemonade is a contemporary example of life writing and the fictions of self-portraiture. Cinematic in its concept, its execution, is a literary Bildungsroman, a novel of development, from a hyper-visible woman recording her presence in the American cultural imagination. I begin with this video clip to draw some comparisons between this textual moment in 2016 and a very different kind of textual moment in 1816, when Zilpha Elaw, another hyper-visible woman, received the calling for her extraordinary career. Also, my use of a 2016 song that samples a 1962 speech to discuss Elaw's 1846 narrative that really was responding to the 1800 Jefferson Revolution will, I hope, underscore the trans-historical thrust of my talk today. American culture, for a whole host of reasons, lends itself to a peculiar brand of historical amnesia. But today, I will argue that it's not always or even mostly a matter of forgetting so much as it's a matter of choosing what stories get recorded. So first, I'll introduce Elaw. Who is she and why is she important for us to know our story? Then I'll explain how we can learn from studying Elaw's rise to international preaching fame, even as she was systematically erased from the historical record, reduced to obscurity by the time of her death. Lastly, I'll illustrate how archival erasures function as the same form of systemic racisms that engendered the Black Lives Matter movement and has brought us to our current political divide. So we know about her because she wrote herself into existence. She wrote our narrative. Some in the room have read it, some have taught it. Um, and for the purposes of today, for those of you who don't know Elaw, what you need to know is that, very briefly, she was free born in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Um, around 1793, that's my best guess thus far. Um, she was indentured to a Quaker family from ages 12 to 18 after being orphaned. Uh, she joined the Methodist Episcopal uh, Society in 1808. She was not affiliated with the African Methodist Episcopal Society, one of the 
um, misreadings that happens a lot today. Um, and she preached very widely um, from Maine to Virginia, um, starting primarily in 1818 um, through 1840 in the United States. And she spent a brief time living maybe about two or three years in Nantucket, which is, was her first chosen home. So, so that was 1818 to 1840, and then in 1840, she leaves and goes to England. And in England, um, her home base of sorts is London, but she spends most of her time preaching um, in the rural northern areas of England from 1840 to 1845. That's what's reported in her narrative. And so she publishes her memoirs in 1846. And that's pretty much where she kind of drops off the face of the earth, and most scholars assume that she died at that point, and she even um, in some um, historical records are, is reported as having died in 1846 or soon thereafter. And that's where I pick up. So my archival research, I look at her early life, found stuff there, and then um, I look at what happens to her after 1846. She remarried um, in 1850. Uh, she's still, she's living in, um, in London. She remarried a white uh, man of German descent who was uh, British, Ralph Bressy Shum, in 1850, and he died in 1854. She was preaching all over this, these areas you see here into the 1860s, and she died in London in 1873. And so we start her preaching story in 1818, and at that time, and throughout the majority of her life, she was poor. So she's a poor black female, which is typically not a recipe for success in 2018, and it certainly wasn't in 1818. So, as the first known black female Methodist Episcopal preacher, Elaw gained celebrity status in the 1800s, yet her transatlantic itinerant story is virtually unknown. Her major contribution to American religious revivalism is untold, and her group burial plot in London is unmarked. Typically, readers place free antebellum black women in one of two camps, abolitionists or fugitive slaves, but Elaw was neither. Using the Bible as her shield, Zilpha Elaw moved about the countryside alone, preached to southern slave drivers, chastised rich white women, and ignored I'm sorry, chastised rich white men <laughs> and ignored white women who opposed her preaching. When she traveled, she attracted the attention of slave catchers, flouted the rules of domesticity, and narrowly avoided debtor's prison. Courting danger at every turn, Elaw was creating in the minds of Americans and the English a spectacle. As a racially marked female body granting herself authority, Zilpha Elaw represented a new nation's fear of the poor, fear of the feminine, and fear of the descendants of Africa. As a black female evangelist, she lived a life of rebellion. But her method of resistance was not simply her choice to preach, it was her itinerancy, her constant movement that placed her life in danger at every moment, yet afforded her a measure of freedom about which most of her race, class, and gender could only dream. Elaw is one of the very few black women who recorded evangelical travels during the antebellum era, and the only one to provide an expatriate's view of American revivalism. 
Unlike other narratives, Elah's unprecedented chronicle of preaching in the slave states after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 sits right in the middle of the crisis years for 19th century black civil rights. Her travels cover both the crest and the declining years of the Second Great Awakening. Her spiritual autobiography provides a specific snapshot of the social and spiritual development of a new nation, and her lens is situated at the intersections of race, class, and gender. Their memoirs function as a literary nexus of three significant pre-Civil War moments. One, the evangelicalism of the Second Great Awakening. Two, the rise and ebb of female preaching. And three, the formation of the black church, independent black churches, as a political hotbed and target for violent responses to black religiosity. In fact, Memoirs is the most extensive account of female itinerant preaching in the 19th century, covering the longest historical period. Yet, I'm betting many of you never heard of her before my blocked evangelism of Elog <laughs> came about. Um, and there is still to date very little scholarship uh, on Elog. So you might be thinking, well, you know, maybe nobody was reading her because it's boring, or perhaps it's not well written. Um, I assumed it was boring, um, and so I resisted it. Uh, but then I ultimately decided that it was worth reading because she was a woman preacher. She was a black woman preacher in the 1820s, and I just like women who break the rules. <laughs> so I, I jumped in, I dove in. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to sort of dive into her narrative um, and you be the judge. So when she first starts preaching, she um, at some point has to like deal with her husband. <laughs> and in her narrative, she says, the work prospered amazingly. And thus I had gone on for two months before my husband knew anything about it. <laughs> for he never went to a place of worship. At last, the tidings came to his ears and were tauntingly disclosed by one who said to him, Josh, your wife is a preacher. This important announcement he met with a direct negative, but when he returned home, he asked me if it was true. I informed him that it was. He was apprehensive that I should become a laughingstock for the people, and this grieved him considerably. Sometimes he said to me, now, child, we are undone. It appeared to him so strange and singular a thing that I should become a public speaker, and he advised me to decline the work altogether and proceed no further. So Elaw's been told by her husband to stop preaching, and in the end, she needs to not only tell her readers how she managed to essentially disobey her husband, but she also needed to convince her readers that she was right in doing so. So she goes on to say, I was very sorry to see him so much grieved about it, but my heavenly father had informed me that he had a great work for me to do. I could not therefore descend down to the consul of flesh and blood, but adhered faithfully to my commission. So in effect, she takes out the middleman. This is a tactic that she uses throughout the narrative every time she encounters a gender boundary. Uh, but how does she negotiate those racial boundaries? Well, one example she gives us is on a trip to Bath, Maine, she says, I had received no invitation, possessed no introductory means to anyone, neither knew any person there, and had been informed that the town was not inhabited by one person of color. And at the door of a Methodist meeting house, a housewife shut it again in our faces and turned away. As she did not lock the door, I opened it <laughs> and entered the house 
and reflected on the repulsive reception I had met with. In her typical fashion, she meets racist containment with directed and purposeful movement. She opens a closed door, enters a contested space. After categorizing such behavior as, quote, a disgrace to the Christian profession, unquote, Elah preaches to the hostile audience, attends prayer meetings, and later concludes that, although my reception was so rude and repulsive at the first, yet my way was enlarged, my message is welcomed, and my subsequent treatment warmly cordial and affectionate. So while female preaching wasn't popular or sanctioned by most, it wasn't generally life-threatening. However, each time Elah, a black woman, left the relative safety of her hometown, she was putting her freedom and life at risk. I mentioned earlier that she traveled to the slave states on preaching missions, and you might think that those were her most dangerous times. They were indeed precarious journeys. And she talks of her, her fears of being captured, imprisoned, or even killed. But some of the moments about which she gives the most detail happen in the northern states where she spends most of her time. And statistically speaking, she was in far more danger of being beaten or kidnapped in Pennsylvania or New Jersey in the 1830s when there was an unprecedented wave of mob violence against African Americans. Elaw tells us in her narrative about a conspiracy to stone her in Utica, New York. She talks about several places in New England that were too dangerous for her to travel through. And in one instance, she mentions um, a time when she was in Salem. And during the time that she was there, the black community was being daily terrorized. So it's that ever-present danger during her travels um, during the, in the United States that I argue moved her physically and spiritually from the U.S. to England. I also use Elaw's narrative and what is not in her narrative to investigate how this racialized marker of slavery affected her both affected both her life and the inner workings of Methodism in the U.S. and England. So initially, uh, that's what drew me to start doing more research on what was happening to her in England. I needed to determine what was going on there. Had she been able to break free of any of the gendered and racial binds that were uh, constraining her in the U.S.? My archival work of cross-referencing census records, church journals, and the personal correspondence of prominent white Methodists has uncovered much about the life of Zilpha Elah. There's still much to learn about her travels in the Mid-Atlantic and New England in the years she spent in Nantucket, but what I've uncovered has answered some important questions. Uh, when she left the bosom of her family in 1840, it's unclear whether or not she intended to return to Nantucket. Um, her, her narrative speaks as if this is going to be a, a short, you know, five-year trip and then she's going to go back. Uh, but in her narrative, it also, there's a contradiction. Their emotions um, are very intense. She reports, she has this very intense parting with her daughter. And it may well have been the fear of the real dangers of travel for anyone in the 19th century, particularly women and particularly black women. However, I argue that Elaw had no firm plans for her return to the United States. Um, she was at least 45 years old when she left. Given the average shortened life expectancy for black women in the 19th century, um, she may have really expected to live her last days in England. 
The end of her narrative reports that she was planning to return in 46 and in her intended departure for the United States, her intended departure for the United States coincides with the period that Rebecca Elaw Pierce, her daughter, gave birth to her third son, Elaw's grandson, David. So it's possible that Elaw had plans to return. It's even possible that she did return for this reason. But what I know is that by 1850, she was married to Ralph Ressisham in England. So that's a pretty short period of time. Um, and she, as I said, had a fairly busy preaching career into the 60s. So uh, after, by the time, after she was married, it doesn't appear that she ever left um, London. So with the exception of 1851, when the Shums may have been on a honeymoon travel, I was looking for what was happening to her this entire time. So I went to this lovely place here, the Methodist Archives Research Center, which is about as welcoming as it looks. <laughs> and spent lots of time there. Doesn't get any more welcoming anytime I go. But, uh, but this, is, this is where the goodies were. So she appears on every UK census from 1841 to 71. And she's first living with a family in Yorkshire and then she lives in London and she's reported as Zilpha Shum by then. And then um, shortly after she arrives in England, she began preaching for the Primitive Methodist um, whole circuit. So Methodism runs on circuits, and I won't get into a full explanation of that here, but it's just a way in which the denomination functions. So they have basically districts that they call circuits. Um, and her memoirs report that the popularity of her preaching in, in the North, Northumberland regions um, and there are several newspaper clippings that report announcements of her preaching all over England, and by 1860, she's well known enough that even the small regional papers no longer explain who she was or that she's an evangelist. They just say, Mrs. Shum is coming. Um, however much her preaching was welcomed by the people of the districts, that popularity was not shared by the British Methodist Church authorities. Elaw's employment, unlike the other women preachers hired to evangelize, um, particularly in the primitive Methodist um, sects, they hired many women, whereas the Wesleyans, not so much. Um, but unlike the other women preachers hired to evangelize, Elaw was not sanctioned by the church supervisors. There are many records of well-respected women preachers in the minute books of the Primitive Methodist Itinerant Preachers Friendly Society, an organization founded to help fund basic needs for the traveling preachers central to the mission of the Methodist Church, otherwise known as circuit riders. Some of these women began preaching in aid of their preacher husbands. Many others were single and or married women who were responding to their own calling to <coughs> preach and were hired to do so. But while women were allowed to preach and lauded for the number of souls saved, the hiring of a black woman was another matter altogether. In 1841, um, when Elaw first started preaching, I found records in the Primitive Methodist Itinerant Preachers Friendly Society, um, and I traced her through basically two white men who she names in her narrative once. And what I found is here in, okay, so this one is in May, um, John Coulson, 
who was the uh, supervisor um, of the first district that she's in at Leeds, is basically sanctioned for employing the black preacher woman. So I looked through about 10 years of journals, and there's a journal for every week, and they're all handwritten, and each journal is about 100 pages. And in all of those journals, the only time I ever saw anything in all caps and underlined was in reference to ELA. And she is never named. So she was regularly employed to preach in these northern districts. And so what I found by chasing Colson and Crompton is that they were sort of renegades and they were constantly getting in trouble for things. And one of the things that they were consi consistently getting in trouble for was hiring the black woman and then uh, hiding her wages. So because of that, I've not been able to find out how much she made, when she made any money, but it, it has become clear that they were siphoning some money to her at some point. And she was preaching in that region for some years. So um, while we don't yet know what she was doing or where she was immediately after the 1846 publication of her memoirs, we know that by 1850 she was in London and she was busy. Um, Ralph Shum left her a little bit of money in his will, because um, as I said, he died in 1854, um, equivalent to like the modern sum of about 2,500 pounds. Um, and a uh, home, and I think it was something like 25 um, shillings a week as a weekly allowance. So she was not wealthy, but she had enough to have a, a servant caregiver live with her until she died. So um, she was well-known enough that she caused a lot of attention. In 1863, Elaw was targeted in Philip Cater's Punch in the Pulpit, uh, a book that was a scathing critique of what he called reverend jesters. In this book, uh, he calls Mrs. Shum one of the many examples of godly gaucheries. And it was, a quite a it was a quite popular book and sold enough copies for at least three editions. And there are other sort of singular attacks uh, on her targets in the newspaper every so often, um, where she's basically held up as an example of um, a joke, a scandal. Um, and by, eight, by the 1871 census, Zilpha Shum is listed as paralyzed and living with a servant caregiver. Her 1873 death certificate lists her condition as insane, indicating she probably suffered with dementia before her death. Interestingly, a Nantucket obituary of Rebecca Elaw Pierce Crawford, who died in 1833, notes the illustrious preaching career of her mother. Yet the British announcements of Elaw Shum's death minimize her contributions to the Methodist circuits. There's no mention of her death in London's Primitive Methodist magazine. And her obituary in the Methodist Recorder and General Christian Times only acknowledges that she was, quote, for many years a class leader and a most consistent member of the Wesleyan Society in the St. George's Circuit. 
That's all it says. She was not buried in or near her husband's private plot, but rather in a different cemetery in an unmarked, unfindable gravesite shared with five to seven other random people. Oh, in an unfindable gravesite shared with five to seven other random people. Yep. Okay. So, all right, so I've covered the, you know, who is Elah, um, her life and her narrative. Um, and what I want to do now is talk a little bit about, so what do we learn from uh, her memoirs? And I want to sort of cover um, of politics and preachers, a tale of two continents, because I, I like stories, because I'm a literature professor. So, um, In 1828, without the endorsement or financial support of any organized church, as I said before, Elaw went to the South, and she preached to anyone who would listen, the enslavers and the enslaved. And she records that she was in Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Alexandria, Virginia. She doesn't explain why she was there, why she felt it necessary to go at that particular moment, um, but she does talk about her ardent fears of being kidnapped and sold into slavery or murdered. Um, in her story about her time in the region, she declares that it was a successful mission with many souls saved and that she was able to meet some important people. In the space of three sentences, Elaw tells her readers that while she was in DC, she stayed with Mrs. Lee and made such an impression on one man, Naval Commodore Rogers, who was a slave owner, that he offered her a permanent position at the naval chapel he built for the community of officers at Greenleaf Point. The anecdote ends with her saying, thanks but no thanks. She expressed her pleasure at being able to serve God, but that he has directed her to move on to other preaching posts. So that's how she ends her year and a half to two years in the area. And that's all expressed in three to four sentences. So what's the backstory? An American story. Anne McCarty Lee is the Mrs. Lee she was referring to, who happened to be um, connected to Rachel Jackson. So impropriety, certainly, and political savvy, perhaps, might have prevented Elon from disclosing that her hostess, Anne McCarty Lee, was an opioid addict and close friend of President Andrew Jackson's late wife, Rachel, who herself, during Jackson's campaign, had been outed as an alleged adulterer and bigamist. Of course, Ann Lee's addiction most likely started because started about three years into her marriage to Henry, who was brother of Robert E. Lee, when her 19-year-old sister delivered Henry's stillborn child conceived while they were all grieving the accidental infant death of Anne and Henry's only child. Did I mention that Anne's sister, Elizabeth, was living with them because she and Anne were orphans and Henry had been appointed guardian of Elizabeth's estate? Henry was summarily unappointed and sued for mismanagement. Anne fled to a healing center for addiction treatment in Nashville 
which was very close to the Jackson's Hermitage, a plantation holding over 500 slaves during Jackson's lifetime. It was there that she was befriended by Rachel Jackson, who had fled DC to escape the vicious attacks on her morals during the 1828 presidential campaign cycle. In fact, from Andrew Jackson's perspective, those character assassinations did more than cast aspersions. He declared that they were the direct cause of her death in December 1828, just before his inauguration. Soon after newly whittled Jackson's March 1829 inaugural address, Jackson's administration became embroiled in scandal and completely dysfunctional, closely resembling the status of the current White House. <laughs> in effect, during that conversely and perversely Me Too moment, President Jackson's rage over the sexual policing of women as a weapon between men changed the course of pol political history. He wouldn't have termed it that way, but he was enraged about the way they were being treated. And it set the stage for Zilpha Elaw to become a spiritual leader for some of Jackson's closest confidants. Elaw was preaching to Jackson's infamous kitchen cabinet, yet she did not, could not tell that story. So, another story from her memoirs. She talks about soon after she gets to England uh, and she meets um, someone from the British Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. And again, it's, this is covered in maybe four sentences, five at most. And she says, I found my situation rather awkward in reference to the Anti-Slavery Society. It was really an august assembly. Their dignity appeared so redundant that they scarcely knew what to do with it all. Had I attended there on a matter of life and death, I think I could scarcely have been more closely interrogated or more rigidly examined. They treated me as the proud do the needy. In this, however, they were mistaken. So she's referring to this invitation from the British Foreign and Anti-Slavery Society, which was founded in 1839 as a successor to the agency committee of the Society for the Mitigation and Gradual Abolition of Slavery throughout the British Dominions. That was founded in 1823, and then after um, slavery was abolished, then they decided, oh, let's, let's take over, you know, take on abolition worldwide. Um, and then they had just had this big world anti-slavery convention in 1840. Um, so they were really feeling themselves by then. Right, and then she comes. So, her narrative says little more than that about that brief meeting. But in a newly recovered letter to John Treadgold, who was the British diplomat and the secretary to the BFASS, I can't say that again, um, something different emerges. So she writes to him, Mr. Treadgold, sir, I take my pen in hand this morning to address a few lines to you after a sleepless night. I presented myself before you yesterday and was requested by that honorable body of gentlemen if I had a petition to make to them, but it was hid from me at that time. And after passing a very pleasant visit with so many of the kind friends of emancipation, I retire quite satisfied for the present and I believe it was ordered by the Lord. So she goes on to say that she went home, she tried to go to sleep, and then um, she was awakened, her heart was awakened. 
and she says that she prayed and she asked, um, she, she asked for an, an answer as to what to do. And she says, the answer was presented to my mind um, that I should listen and hear what I, have to, what I have to say to thee. And while I mused and with solemn prayer, these words were presented to my mind, make a petition of them, kind friends, that a door may be open to thee to speak for thy people as my request. And now I would say that I believe it was hid from me when present with you, that I might be alone to commune with God in my own heart. So this is the language that was presented to me. And now if these honorable gentlemen could see any way, I should be happy to have another interview with them. I remain your unworthy, Zilpha Elah. So she presents a very different, um, there's a different story presented here in this letter. Um, and what's interesting about it is that in her narrative, she clearly makes a decision, a narrative decision, to present the fact that she's not going to give these men what it is that they want, which is for her to be molded into something that she isn't there to do. She's there to preach. She's not an anti-slavery activist. And she doesn't like the way that they're dealing with him. And this is what she chooses to put in her narrative. But in this letter, she clearly is struggling, right, with her private positioning as a black female. And she has a different answer. So I'm showing this because I'm presenting and have been presenting many e-law stories to you. And some of them um, are in her narrative, right, but then weren't recorded in the Methodist records. All of her accounts of her preaching weren't in the Methodist records. Others like this and the Jackson story are political stories that were sort of in the narrative but so muted, so understated that they are without context and purposefully apolitical as the genre would, would, um, would have it. But all of these are stories that generated from that moment in 1816 when she was called to preach where I started, that 1816 moment. When she accepted that call to preach, that propelled her cultural hypervisibility that I referenced earlier. But I want to engage in a textual moment from Jesse Williams' 2016 speech to theorize a bit about her archival invisibility. Accepting his BET Humanitarian Award, Williams called for active engagement in the Black Lives Matter movement, evoking history, calling names. Tell Rakia Boyd how it's much better to live in 2012 than it is to live in 1612 or 1712. Tell that to Eric Garner. Tell that to Sandra Bland. Tell that to Darian Hunt. People hoped that things would get better. But the next summer, a large group of preachers and theologians traveled from all over the country to counter-protest the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The interfaith group locked arms and marched through the streets holding love signs while chanting Black Lives Matter in the faces of violent white supremacists. Later that day, a young neo-Nazi from Michigan murdered counter-protester Heather D. Heyer to make the record clear which lives matter. Almost 200 years before those clergy sojourned to face evil in Charlottesville, 
Zilpha Elam made up her mind in 1827 that she would risk kidnapping, or worse, and travel from New York to Virginia to stand in the face of Southern enslavers and preach her gospel of love. She managed to survive, but her story did not. Stories that do not fit recognizable models are often erased from the record, becoming lives that don't matter. Yes, we have our memoirs, but I propose that that is not her story, not really. It is a beautifully crafted chronicle of a Christian awakening that changed American culture from the inside out. Moreover, we get to see how Methodism, after its explosive growth in America, was faring back in England, its country of origin. However, we don't get much of Elaw's perspective on that changing culture, how it differed from her past, or what, in fact, her past was like. The memoir, as with most spiritual narratives, weaves the wonderful tale of her ministry. It does not invite us into her private world. In autobiography, there is much that cannot or will not be disclosed. In the case of a black woman preacher of the 1800s, most of the story could not be told if the book were to be sold. Most of her life story has never been known. Even the events that are recorded in her narrative are veiled tales bounded by genre, audience, race, and gender. Moreover, the process of finding records about a woman who significantly contributed to the fastest growing Protestant denomination of the 19th century reveals the brutality done to black women, indeed to any people who do not fit or are undesirable to the narratives that any given nation wants to construct about itself. And that violence is this, the records really are not there. One must conduct primary research on a person of color by finding evidence through other people's life records and ephemera. The non-people of color with whom the person interacted, the people who do matter. More often than not, black women are not fully named in pre-Civil War documents as they were owned by a master, father, husband, or some combination. As highlighted by the 21st century hashtag say her name and Black Lives Matter movements, the erasure of black female reality by not naming them is a violence in and of itself. I began my talk highlighting some aspects of intersectionality in the visual album of perhaps the most hyper-visible black woman today. Yet much of the lyric and cinematic artistry of Beyonce's Lemonade depicts and problematizes black female invisibility. I'll end my talk today pointing out the direct lineage from archival erasure to physical erasure. Being buried or completely missing from the historical record is a willful and insidious act of violence, often perpetrated because the actions and lives of black women ran counter to the country's need to maintain illusions of white superiority and thus were deemed inconsequential to the national agenda. Erasure from history is state-sanctioned violence against the representation of and realities of black lives. Eliting black women from the written records then make it easier to enact state-sanctioned violence against their physical bodies. It is a small step from deciding that some lives are without historical consequence to being able, being able to take lives without consequence. The purposeful and unrelenting removal of black women from the histories of making the new world has morphed into the current cultural pervasiveness of making black women invisible 
therefore expendable. As always, the question of humanity is what is at stake. During the 2016 U.S. presidential election cycle to Melania Trump and or the Trump campaign team, First Lady Michelle Obama was invisible enough to take her words without consequence, just as other politicians, pundits, and public personalities had misrepresented her body as bestial and questioned her gender without consequence. Those actions bear a striking resemblance to the treatment of Sojourner Truth, whose words were misappropriated and body misrecognized. If the floatist could have her words stolen and public body bestialized, then how consistently and what aspects of human dignity might have been afforded to Elaw, a poor black female preacher, or Sandra Bland, a summer staffer for an HBCU? While the hashtag say her name is aimed at changing policy, it also places the act of recognition at the center of its argument. Saying her name is the act of making visible the state-induced invisibility of black people in general and black women specifically. In the same way that the movement's founders who have some relative privilege and recognition took up the mantle of recovering the stories of violated black women who have been misrecognized as criminals and less than worthy of civil rights, many free black women in the 19th century acted as public defenders and upholders of black womanhood. They spoke of and for enslaved, criminalized, and routinely dehumanized black women in America. Not surprisingly, except for a very few, those defenders have themselves been made invisible, violently descripted from public records, and thus the American cultural imagination of black womanhood. The political process of naming the black female victims of state brutality is an act of recovery. It is direct resistance to the subjugation of these women's real and substantive lives and challenges the power of state institutions to demonize, criminalize, and effectively control the public consumption of black women. In that spirit of resistance, my work highlights the international fame of Zilpha Elaw, I'm sorry, of Zilpha Panko Elaw Shum, and takes up the challenge of recovering a woman who was larger than life, yet misrecognized as inconsequential, and whose work was misplaced at the back of literary shelves. In her lifetime, Elaw was hyper-visible as a black body on public display, yet rendered invisible as a transnational evangelist and major contributor to the rapid spread of Methodism, the largest Christian denomination of her time in the US and Britain. Thank you. Some people may need to leave for two o'clock. Um, and is, was your class at two o'clock? But you're you're okay. Okay, good. Okay, then we have a half hour for uh, questions and discussions. So, um, do, will, do you want to recognize people? Oh, sure. Okay. Sure. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Um, so, uh, so the ACO one of so, so lately, I, I, I was a fellow at the Hutchinson Center in the, well, shit. I was, oh, whoa. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I'm, I'm Aisha. Um, I'm in Tottenham's race and religion class. Um, 
So I was a Hutchins Fellow last semester, and um, there's a great emphasis on the archive. And I was inspired to that to a fault, uh, to the extent that I, uh, I kind of write down what happens throughout my day, and I basically brag to my friends and say, this is essential for the archive. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, um, what do you think about self-archiving as opposed to leaving that all in the hands of others? So that's one question. And then the second question is the use of the term violence in, 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 your, in your conclusion. Um, and I noticed that you used the term violence and then you were very specific with uh, distinguishing physical violence. So I wonder um, if the, the earlier violence that you were alluding to, is it a different kind of violence than a physical violence? If so, what is it? Is it an epistemic violence? How different is it from the physical violence? So that's, that's and so the pushback is some people may think the violent term is pretty strong. Thank you. Um, so yeah. Yeah, thank you um, for both questions. So um, th the easier one first, um, yes to all of that. Um, <laughs> I think self-archiving is, is great and essential, right? Um, um, particularly um, for people who might not otherwise get in the mix, right? For women, for people of color, any, any marginalized group, um, I think absolutely it needs to be done, should be done. Um, did I answer all the part of that question? Okay, all right. And then, <clears throat> thanks for the second part, because that's something that I'm artic articulating as we speak in my writing. Um, so yes, um, I've been challenged to come up with a different word, and I have not been able to, uh, because I still, it feels very much like violence. And so I am very open to a different word because it is a different kind of violence. So I'm not trying to suggest that physical violence is the same thing, right? But I'm also not trying to say, I'm not trying to set up a hierarchy at all. So they're different and I'm, and I'm in the midst of writing a chapter about those differences and I have been challenged to find another word and I'd love to find another word but I haven't found a word that speaks to what I mean and what I feel when I say it. I would suggest go find another word. Um, I think the same kind of debate, the reason why I ask the question, the same debate is being, um, is being brought about in a, for a lot of black feminist philosophers, mm. particularly in the area of epistemology. Mm -hmm. They have used that, you know, the, the term violence and they have received pushback from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's taking up more words on the page than I would like to <laughs> articulate it, uh, but it has to be articulated. So I'm struggling, yeah. Todney Thomas here. Um, thank you so much for this really rich and just provocative and thoughtful presentation. Um, in listening to it, um, I was really struck by a real methodological sophistication, um, and I think you know, I almost forgot that you're a literature person. Then I was like, well, until the end. And I was like, what happens when a lit person does history? And so to me, the kind of question or really seeming, I'm sure, but I mean, it's, it's really textured and it's really rich and the, and the story and the connections, like, you know, I'm going to be transhistorical, right? Like that's a methodological innovation, right? And I think uh, the thing that you're doing at the end, the seeming you're doing, to me shows what does a literary approach to history add 
had to write the there's a there's a methodological innovation you're doing that I, I just think needs to be noticed. And just, I think piggybacking off of Maisha's point, I think about discursive violence, and I think about my newest project on black church arson. I just gave a paper last week where I talked about going to see an art piece that's made from the remains of a burned black church, right? And there's this sort of curatorial language. It talked about it as a resurrected church and notions of ascension. And I was left with my bot, a very like physical response to the art. Mm -hmm. And my first response was revulsion. And I thought this, this artist lynched a black church basically, right? Um, and I have been trying to think about how do you theorize the relationship between representation and matter, mm -hmm. right? Like black sacred matter, black life matter, how is it symbolically represented in words? How is it physically represented in space? So I think there's, there's like an ontological, existential feel, like black life matter, how do we theorize that in this moment, right? In all of its valences. Um, and I think this is, a, this is a way in, right? I think that like black studies scholars, I think black feminists have something to say about it, but I, I think you're, you're like pulsing on like the question of the moment that so many people are um, going with. And to me, my response to the artwork was this felt violent. Like I, I just thought, you know, I looked at the curatorial language, I'm like, it just felt very sanitized and transcendent, but I felt like someone just took something and like called me nigger. Like it, it just, it was just really like, it didn't feel like art, it didn't feel transcendent, it felt bad in my body. Mm -hmm. um, it felt disrespectful. Um, and it felt like another round of, of violence. And, and the visitors' books showed people wrestling with the piece, right? So the curator sent me pages that he collected, like I transcribed pages for you. And then I looked in the visitors' book and what I saw was very different. Like it was like, Black Lives Matter, fuck you. Thanks for tempering with our sake. Like people were angry, right? So I, I agree, I, I, I think stay with violence. I think it's, 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 we read the archive from the moment that we're in. There's a theorization of black life matter happening across fields, right? What does it mean? How can we understand it? How can we understand its weight? How can we understand its invisibility? Um, and, and I think theorizing from this moment where we're thinking about what violence feels like, the textures of it, how it exists, how it's propagated. It, it just, it, it feels like it speaks to this moment that we're in right now, right? Um, and, 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 and how those, those absences, I mean, just seeing the fact that they kept calling her the black preacher, black preacher woman, like underline, like, you know, oh, you know what I mean? And that's the only thing they capitalized and underlined and like hundreds of, how is that not violent, right? Like there's a, a lack of naming, you know? Um, so yeah, I would agree. I'd say maybe, you know, is it ontological? Is it discursive? Is it gendered? Is it about seeming this kind of intersectional representational violence, right? Like you can actually come up yeah, yeah. with the term. This is your jam. You can come up with the term. And but thank I, you for that because yeah. I had actually forgotten until you, you mentioned the art piece when I first felt the violence. And it was in, in the archive when I saw that written. That was the first moment and it really felt like an act of violence. I had a physical response to it. I felt like I had been slapped. I literally had to get up and leave the room and take a break. And I'm used to sitting and working through journals like all day long with, without break. 
So I'd actually forgotten that, that, that moment. Um, so that explains to me why I'm so attached to the word violent. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I couldn't get away. Like the thing I remember most about that piece is that lump. The first response mm -hmm. that was just like, "Ugh, it's re like revol yeah. it's revulsion, utter revulsion, right?" And it, it's no—I don't mean to harm the British artist who did it. Like I, I don't mean any disrespect, yeah. but there was a response, right? And like representation—they, we have embodied reactions to them. Too. Well, yeah, because that's what art often does, right? right. That's the what it's supposed to do, and the archive can do it as well. Um, Ms. Williams, yes. Oh, Connie Williams. Oh, I, thank you. Uh, I'm Connie Williams. Uh, I'm related to Preston, who hangs out on the wall up there. <laughs> so, uh, I I think it's really important to use the word violence, and I would hope in in your writing, with all the stuff you've thought about, is um, helping people to understand the different kinds of violence. It's so easy, we can all relate to physical violence, you know, but it, uh, I think, you know, you, terms that have been used have been soul murder, mm -hmm. you know, I know you've, you've heard that, and if you um, think about the experiences of black people uh, in the past and in the present, and just daily examples um, of what people live through. I don't know if you've uh, probably heard just recently the study reported on um, what helps to account for the high degree mm -hmm. of infant mortality yes. Uh, yes. maternal mortality in African-American, regardless of class and income. Mm -hmm. And uh, the... Another it, slap in the face. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it, it's, it's, the, it, it, it's the constant stress and soul murder. And if you take just common daily experiences, like you're standing at a crowded bakery counter, you know, and, and the clerk, she calls, you've been there before people who come in behind you, but the person waiting, oh, he points to this with this. It, it's like, you don't exist, you know? And so that, that, that happens in thousands and thousands of ways because of uh, what people see in uh, a racial, uh, what racialized appearance, you know? And they see someone who is, black and who, who doesn't matter. So I think it's important to use the term violence and, and to, in, in your text, when you're writing about this, talk about um, the, the different kinds of violence and how, uh, how people are violated mm -hmm. because that's what, what happens over and over again and the kind of uh, physical and, and mental stress that it leads to and how it shortens lives uh, very much. Mm -hmm. And I, I think people react, so many people react so negatively and strongly to Black Lives Matter. I mean, 
so many whites can't stand the use of that term, and the only thing they can counter is like, well, white lives matter too, you know, and it, it completely not understanding the point, you know, mm -hmm. of of what this is like, and that what we have seen uh, throughout history is is actions that speak very loudly that your life, your personhood, um, does not matter. Not only does it not matter, it needs to be completely snuffed out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank so, you. I think Thank it's you. important. Thank you. Excellent uh, research and insights. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to the book. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you for this wonderful um, presentation. It's really neat to see this come together because I've been lucky enough to read two of your chapters. Um, and so one of the questions that I have um, is about the way you see yourself and the way you're positioning yourself in relation to Ela's own project and what she was doing. So I remember in an earlier chapter about print culture, you talked about the ways in which she was really critical about the rabid poisons of the press um, and the metaphorical and physical enslavement of black bodies, but also the way that she was pigeonholed within certain genres um, during her time and the way she was represented in the media during her time um, and then how she's been represented since. And so since she actively spoke out against that during her life, um, you seem to be following in some ways in her footsteps. And so I was just wondering about how you see yourself um, in relation to her own political project. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question, Carly, because <laughs> Um, that was not intentional. And I did not see myself that way. Um, I was struggling to write an introduction uh, for, um, uh, for, for an edition that I'm putting out. And uh, this idea of, of violence and, and, and say her name, it just kept coming up. And uh, first I had to write a conference paper and I couldn't quite articulate it, it didn't fit and I jettisoned it from the, and I kept trying to write stuff and it kept getting in the way. Like I would try it, it wasn't working out, it's because I hadn't thought it through and then you know, I'd give it to somebody and they'd say, well this isn't fit. And so finally um, I stopped getting rid of it and decided work this out because it's in your head and so I don't know why or what happened, but just at some moment, what I was working on intensely gelled with what was bothering me emotionally intensely, and they came together, and I decided that I had to write what I was thinking and that I wasn't crazy in seeing a connection. Because to me, they were intricately connected, but I hadn't been able to explain that to an audience well enough, so no one else saw it, and in I, you know, so it just, so it it just happened, um, and once it started happening, then it started becoming clearer and clearer to me, um, and so now I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is my mission, and it sort of made my decision because I I was saying to Anne shortly after I got here that I needed to decide whether I was gonna when these projects are done. Am I going to keep working on Elon? Because there's so much st 
more to research, or am I going to turn to another project because I don't necessarily want to be known as the e-law woman? Because <laughs> already, you know, if I'm lucky, this is half my career. If I'm not lucky, it may be all my career. <laughs> um, but bringing these things together and the politics of it kind of has made my decision that I'll probably keep going working on e-law. So thanks for the question. Yes, uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm Mafaz. I'm a student at the Divinity School, and I'm uh, I'm also part of um, Professor Thomas's class. Um, what's really intriguing to me about um, about her Ila's story is um, it, it seems that at multiple points she's being asked to do something that is not necessarily part of her project, and she seems to be able to say no. Um, and that's really interesting uh, to me, especially as you tie it to our present moment, um, how very often uh, black women in particular, black and brown women uh, in a more general sense, are um, sort of put in positions where they're, because of their positionality, constantly asked to speak for others, to hurt for others, and never for themselves. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about you know, those decisions that she, she made to say no? Um, it's really the thing that just got me totally immersed in her story, is she's such a rebel. <laughs> I mean, she just, she says no to everything. She's con she was constantly doing things that she wasn't supposed to be doing and going places she wasn't supposed to be going. Um, and nothing about her decisions make quote unquote sense. They certainly didn't to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she, you know, as I said, she disobeyed her husband. She disobeyed many of the ministers who she would run into who would say, you're not supposed to be doing this. Um, she left her daughter, um, you know, with friends, but she left her daughter when her daughter was about, I think, 11, 11 or 12, to start her preaching career. Um, to the whole, you know, going, she went to the slave states twice. Um, then going to England. She had no money. Um, when she moved, I'm going back and forth, I'm sorry, but when she moved to Burlington, New Jersey from uh, Bristol, Pennsylvania, which is where she was born, she got upset because there was no um, education system for, for black kids like there was where she grew up. So she just opened up a school. She's like, I, what's wrong with you people? Why don't you have a way of educating your black children? So she, she didn't have, again, she didn't have any money. <laughs> and she decided, oh, I'm going to open up a school. So she did that for a couple years. This was before she started preaching. And so in many ways, she clearly always saw herself um, and defined herself as a woman of God um, and a woman of service. Right, and not to say that those things are mutually exclusive, and her, they're the same. Right, so she—that was her service to God always, and so that was her compass. And wherever she went, she was, I think, enabled to say no more easily because, for her, she had a clear compass. So she could say, "No, I'm not here to speak on your anti-slavery agenda because that's your agenda." Right? I know I, I'm a preacher and I want to preach. Well, of course, we know now with the letter, she changed her mind, but again, on her terms. She didn't like the way she was being treated, so she said no and left. 
um, but then went and prayed because she, it wasn't sitting right with her that it, well, even though she didn't like the men, it was anti-slavery, right? So she, she had to deal with that. But so she had, she had her way of saying no, which was always, it was always about her God. That was her compass. So if she wasn't clear, she would pray, and then she would come back, and she would tell whoever it was, yes or no or maybe, and she would give them the reason, and the reason was always, my God told me. And in the same way, she could tell people what was wrong with them, too. So she, she had a very sarcastic, sharp wit, and so she had no problems telling folks all over Britain, you know, you people are heathens, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> your ministers suck, <laughs> I'm better. <laughs> uh, and it was all because she felt completely authorized by God to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Amelia Cohen, are you able to get some sense of what her early life was like? Because I'm kind of curious about the family she was born into and that Apparently she lost when she was nine. And you mentioned her being apprenticed to a Quaker family. I, I read that she was adopted by that family. And I was quite interested in that aspect of it because uh, there are many examples in that period of Quakers supporting and befriending uh, talented kids of color, such as Benjamin Banneker, for example, who was crucially influenced by Quaker teachers. And I just wondered if, uh, it's not that she sounds like a Quaker to me exactly, but uh, I'm just curious of the two aspects, her birth family and then mm -hmm. it's a big, there's a big difference between being adopted by a family or being apprenticed to them or being indentured to them. And maybe there wasn't in, in that particular example, but I'm just curious to know what you know about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd not read that anywhere. <laughs> she was not adopted, she was indentured. <laughs> um, uh, and there is a big difference. Um, so she was, um, her parents, I don't know whether they were free or not. So, um, I mean, they were free when she was, when she was born and, and coming up. I don't know whether they were always free or whether they were part of the large-scale manumissions that were happening in that area or because it was a Quaker um, um, region, right? So um, they were religious. She doesn't say how they practiced. But what she does say in her narrative is that their religious practice was very different from the Quaker practice. Mm -hmm. So when she, first her mother died, uh, giving birth for the 22nd time. Um, of those 22 childbirths, only three children survived. So when her mother died, her father sent her youngest sister to live with an aunt in Philadelphia. Her older brother had already gone to live with some grandparents in the Midwest, and she was indentured to the Mitchell family who lived in close proximity. They were neighbors. And she was indentured with them from ages 11 to 18, until she was 18. Um, and so she talks about uh, having some scuffles with her mistress, um, not as if you know they were mean to her in any way, but just I think normal sort of teenage rebellious stuff. Um, and um, she was, you know, she was well educated, um, which I'm sure they did, they educated her. Um, and she grew up with their children and then and left as soon as possible. 
Did I answer all of your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and she married like right after she she was indentured with them until she was 18, and then she married very soon after, and then she and her husband moved over to um, to Burlington, New Jersey, which is like crossing the Charles River. So the two communities are very, Bristol, Pennsylvania, Burlington, New Jersey, were very close. You can walk them. Um, and her husband was a fuller, and um, she had the one daughter. And then her husband died soon after he told her she couldn't preach. <laughs> <laughs> Happy coincidence, I don't know. <laughs> Dean Hempton. Oh, can I ask, can I go for, can oh, I ask? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see the mic back there. How are you? Sorry. It's good to see you. Um, it was a pleasure being in your class last semester, and it's a pleasure uh, hearing your talk now. Um, I know from your class that we talked a lot about like the ar archival work and how difficult it is to find anything about black women, period, um, which, which is what makes this work so profound as well. Um, but I was also wondering, like, do you see this as a hermeneutical project? And like, like, do you see yourself like teasing out the nuances of how Zilfa Ela looked at biblical text and like creating it into a hermeneutical work and like using it as like a recommendation for how we can all kind of look at biblical text differently? Um, and do you see that as a, as a part of this project as well? Um, not a part of the book that I'm finishing now, mainly because it needs to get finished now. <laughs> um, but there is a folder because I had to go through all of the points at which she references, um, references the Bible. And I needed to look at that. And I did find some really interesting things. So I have a folder on my computer to go back to that. <laughs> and I'm seeing that as an article. Okay. So yeah. Um, but I don't think I'll do more than an article on what I'm seeing um, to open up the conversation for younger scholars such as yourself to pick it up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Dean Hampton, you want to? Yeah, my question's a little bit similar to that, really. I'm, I'm, so two questions that I'm not sure if the, 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 the violent silence of the archives allow an answer to. but. The first is trying to um, get at what the preaching experience was like for her and for her audiences. I mean, uh, are there? I mean, is she an extemporary preacher, or does she preach from you know kind of rudimentary text, or um, does she go back to you know common themes that are important to her? You know, is humor a big part of what she does when she preaches, or? Um, and in other words, just to get a sense of what mm -hmm. this life calling was like for her actually doing it. And I suppose the second question is, I noticed in one of the archive um, um, uh, uh, manuscripts that you cited that there was obviously some men uh, facilitating th th this preaching and some of them seemed to have been sanctioned for it. Mm -hmm. Um, by quarterly meetings and so on. So I was just wondering, you know, are, are there, um, how did she get her entree into these Methodist societies and preaching houses and so on? And were people being sanctioned? And what did they do? I mean, did they stop or did they? Um, and so, <clears throat> in other words, is there a real disciplinary apparatus brought against her and, you know, in various Methodist locales up and down the country? Yeah, thank you. Um, so to the first question, um, 
I don't have any sermons of hers. I wish I did. What I have is, um, well, she always preached from, or at least she reports that she always preached from, uh, from, from the Bible, from a text. So she will, in her narrative, say, I preached from and then give a text, right? So uh, she seemed to be very text-oriented um, and not so much the extemporaneous uh, type. So that's one thing. Um, and um, she, she, I mean, she's quoting scripture all throughout the text. So very, very highly literate. And she also reports that there were times when she doesn't preach because she doesn't get a text from God. <laughs> so at least twice, and it could be more, but I'm remembering specifically at least two times, she says, you know, the words didn't come. God did not give me the text. I, I flipped through, I'm looking at the text. So she was very uh, dependent on the text in that, in that way. Um, reports, I only have seen two or three reports of her preaching in terms of commenting on it. And they're very sparse. They sort of say she was melodious, um, she was very popular. Um, they don't mention humor. I kind of have to believe it's there simply because of the way she writes her narrative. <laughs> so I, 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 I speculate strongly that it's, it was there. Um, so so that's, what, that's really all I have, all I can know about her preaching. Um, in terms of the, the people who supported her, um, it was primarily um, those primitive Methodist uh, superintendents who were trying to, I think it had to do with money because she was constantly being um, introduced and uh, invited. And so that was her entryway. And she actually had a letter of invitation. And there was some, um, a man over in England, what's his name, William Wood, who wrote back over to Nantucket asking if the letter of invitation from Peter Macy of Nantucket was, did he actually write it? So they were confirming her. So, you know, they, and, and there were missions, missionaries from England who came to Nantucket, and I think that's how she sort of got her thinking about going to England. Um, so she would get invitations, and she'd go from place to place. And so I think in that sense, it was not a problem. And there were places where she went where she wasn't welcome, as she said, and they would say, you can't preach here, and then, you know, she would do her thing. Either she'd leave or she'd do how she felt. But they were trying to pay her. And that's where it gets tricky. And that's why they were being sanctioned, because they had many women on the books. They employed them, right? And they had salaries. They had benefits. They had sick pay. They had uh, retirement pay. Um, so employing her meant basically putting her in the system. And, and I, so I think that was where the problem came in, where they were like, wait, hold on. <laughs> uh, we're not putting this black woman in, in the system and, and paying her money. And all the sanctions had to do with, they used the word employ. So, um, and she preached in a lot of places and it wasn't just for the primitive Methodists. She preached for all denominations. She literally would preach for anyone who would, you know, open their doors to her. So she talks about the Unitarians, not nicely, but <laughs> uh, she, you know, if they opened the doors, she would preach for them and then talk about them behind their backs. So it was, I think it was really around money, and then that's when they got sanctioned. Um, whereas the, now, so the primitive Methodists would hire her and they wanted her to preach. Meanwhile, the Wesleyans just wouldn't let her preach at all. They didn't invite her, didn't want her, they were done. So 
Anne is standing up. I think we're out of time. Right. Kim, I can't thank you enough for this lecture and the thank work you all. behind it. I don't think I've ever heard such a substantive and profound um, audience discussion evoked by years of research. And we know what that took and what it means, and we're profoundly grateful. Thank you. Thank you.